My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And our sermon text this morning comes from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you. As John prayed earlier, we are the nations. Once we were not a people, and now we are your people. Lord, we pray that as we look at your purpose for the nations, that God, you would build our faith. Help us to trust you. Help us to be moved to see the nations the way that you see the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is our final sermon series on our church mission statement, the gospel in community for all nations. At the beginning of every year, we start the year with a sermon series, or start the school year, with a sermon series that reflects our DNA as a church, is a way of reminding ourselves of who are we, what are we doing here, And this year we went back to the basics, where we looked at the mission in which our church seeks to fulfill, and that is the gospel in community for all nations. The last two weeks, Pastor John preached. He preached on the gospel, the good news of Jesus' perfect life, his sin-atoning death, dying in the place of sinners as a substitute, and his triumphant resurrection, and what that means for us. That when we stand before the throne of God, we stand there guilty in and of ourselves, and yet righteous because of what Jesus has done. No one can say, I earned this for me. Jesus earned it. We sang this morning, hallelujah for the cross. Jesus bought us. He paid the price. That's the gospel. Last week, we looked at in community. The church that God creates, when he saves us, he doesn't merely save us as individuals. He saves us into a people. And we saw that Christians are to be people who commit their lives with other Christians, who know their leaders, who know the members of the body, and who are committed to help build the body up by speaking the truth in love to one another. This week, we're looking at the final part of our church's mission statement, for all nations. God cares deeply about individuals. 
He cares deeply about individuals. You cannot relate to Jesus truly apart from a personal faith in Christ. Your parents' faith, it cannot save you. Your culture's faith cannot save you. Your household's faith cannot save you. You have to choose to trust in Jesus for yourself as an individual. You either relate to Jesus individually or you don't relate to Jesus at all. But we do not relate to Jesus merely as individuals. And what we're going to see this morning is that God cares about groups as well. He cares about tribes. He cares about languages. He cares about peoples. He doesn't merely want to see a big collection of individuals gathered around him. He wants to see a group of people from all peoples. A beautiful, diverse picture with language groups and different ethnicities standing before him, worshiping in a harmonious voice, singing his praises. And here's the main thing that I want us to see this morning as we wrap up this sermon series. The worship of Jesus from people from every tribe and language and nation, it should be a major priority for your life. And it should be a major priority for our church. The worship of Jesus from people from every tribe and language and nation should be a major priority for your life individually and for our church corporately. And to see this, we're going to ask three questions. First, what is God's purpose for the nations? If this should be a priority for you, you should know what's God's purpose in this. Second, how will this happen How will God's purpose for the nations come about? And then third, what does this mean for your life and for our church? So first, let's look at what God's purpose for the nations is. And we are going to be all over the Bible this morning. What does God want for the nations? If I were to ask you that, how would you answer? The Bible teaches that God's purpose for the nations is not chiefly to save the nations. That might surprise some of you. God's purpose for the nations is not chiefly their salvation. He absolutely wants this. But that's not the end goal of what he wants for the nations. If you went to either Abu Dhabi or you went to Dubai or you went to Fajera and you were swimming in the ocean and while you're there, you see someone out there drowning and you stop everything, and you run out, and you dive into the water, and you swim out, and you grab that person around by their shoulders, and you pull them in, you drag them in, that would be a heroic and noble act. And if people surrounded you and were just like, what would cause you to do that for a person? Why would you go throughout all that effort to save that person? Your answer would not be, so I could save them. You saved them for a reason. Your answer would be, so he could live. (laughs) I don't want him to die. I want him to be the father that he's supposed to be, or the mother that she's supposed to be. I want them to have a full and meaningful life. I don't want their life to be cut short. You saved them for a purpose, unto life. The salvation was absolutely necessary, but it wasn't the end. You saved them so they could live So they could enjoy life to the purpose. You saved them from something to something. 
God's chief goal is not to save the nations. That's a means. He wants to save the nations. But his goal is so that through salvation, the nations would be glad in him. His goal is for the nations to worship him. John Piper captures this so well in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. I don't know if you've read it. It's a fantastic, fantastic book. The very first words of the book are this. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions is here not for the sake of missions. Salvation is here not for the sake of salvation. It's here for the worship of God. It's here to be able to be happy in God, to delight ourselves in glorifying him. God wants the nations to experience this. That's why he saves them, is so they can. He sends his own son to die, that the nations can stop trying to find life in that which only leads to their death. To stop going to empty vessels for drink and instead come to the fountain of life. And this has always been God's plan for the nations. This is not something that was new with the coming of Jesus on the scene. We've already read it. We've had two texts already from the Old Testament that celebrate God's plan for the nations in our call to worship and in our pastoral prayer. And if we go back to even the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 12, we see that God had a plan and a purpose for the nations. So in Genesis 12, we see that God calls Abraham. He's the father of Israel. And he calls Abraham for a purpose. These are the first words that God says to Abram. And he says this, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. That's the people of Israel. God's going to take Israel. He's going to take Abraham. He's going to send him into a land, and he's going to make him into a great nation. Why? And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Israel's going to be chosen so that they can be a blessing to others. And then God says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right from the beginning of the people of Israel's history, going to Abraham, we see that they existed in order to bless all the families of the earth. That God desires the nations to be blessed in the offspring of Abraham. And this is what would have been how faithful Israelites understood their calling. So if we turn to the book of Psalms, we read in Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us. This is Israel praying. They're making a request to God. God, be gracious to us and bless us. And make your face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all peoples, all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity 
and guide the nations upon the earth. So as Israel is saying, Lord, we want you to bless us. Pour out your blessing on us, Lord. We are the offspring of Abraham. We are the nation. Pour out your blessing on us, not so that they could be rich, not so that they could be the big ones and rule over the nations, but so that they could be a vehicle, a means of having the peoples be glad in God. That the nations would be glad in God. And as we keep reading the prophet Isaiah, he sees the fulfillment of this hope. The very end of Isaiah, Isaiah 66. God says through Isaiah, I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and all tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And if we've been reading the Bible, we see that God's glory is what we need. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The nations are going to come and they're going to see the glory and God is going to gather them and they shall declare my glory among the nations. When we read the Old Testament, we see that God focuses on Israel. Israel is a central figure in the Old Testament. But God focuses on Israel because it's through Israel that the nations are going to be blessed. And this happens through Jesus. The Apostle Paul in Galatians says that the offspring of Abraham is not a people group first. The offspring of Abraham is a person, singular, Jesus. He is the one in whom all the nations are going to be blessed. He comes and dies and he tears down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile in his flesh. Paul says in Ephesians 2, so that there is one people for God from all the nations. And when we turn to the end of the Bible in Revelation 7, the chapter that we read at the beginning of the sermon, the Apostle John, like Isaiah before him, sees the fulfillment of what Jesus' death accomplished. After this I looked, and behold, the great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's purpose for the nations is that they would worship Him. It is a God-centered purpose. He saves them so that they would delight in him. His glory is their goal. His praise is their purpose. And the salvation of the nations exists for worship. Which leads to our next question then. How will this happen? How will these nations, who at one point in time do not know God will come to a position where they will not only know God, but that they will delight in God and worship God. How will that happen? And as we read through the New Testament, we see that it happens through two primary means. It happens through gospel preaching, and it happens through faithful perseverance. Through gospel preaching and faithful perseverance. And we're just going to look at those one at a time. 
First, the nations will worship the Son because people will go to them and will preach the gospel to them. Worship does not happen apart from preaching because knowledge of God does not happen apart from the word of God. You can maybe walk out and you could draw aspects about God. God, The heavens declare the glory of God, that's true. But you don't have the key to interpret what you see. You would filter it through your own lens and your own worldview. That's why there's different religions, is that these peoples are interpreting what they see around. We need someone to go and to give a word, to preach, and to say, this is the interpretation. This is what's true. This is what's right. And if that's going to happen, then that means people are going to need to leave one place or one group of people and go to another. That's what we read in the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 10. Romans 10 is thinking about the nations and he says, How will these people who do not believe call on him unless they, whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? If no one goes and preaches the gospel to the nations, then the nations will not worship Jesus. Worship happens through preaching. They will not know the hope that comes through faith in him. They will not know the great love of God in sending his own son to die so that enemies, those who are rightly condemned before him, can be made family members adopted into his family by faith. The nations will not know the pleasure and the happiness that comes through obedience to God by faith. This will only come through people going to the nations and preaching to the nations, which is why Jesus commands us to do this. After Jesus has risen from the dead in Matthew 28, he appears before his disciples and he gives them a charge Many of you know it. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He doesn't say, go make disciples of Israelites. He's talking to Israelites in this period of time. And he doesn't say, go make disciples of Israelites or go make disciples of your nation. He calls upon his church to make disciples of all nations. And if we're going to understand Jesus' command in such a way as we can obey Jesus' command, we should ask a question that I haven't answered yet. What is a nation? Biblically speaking, what does Jesus mean when he says, make disciples of all nations? So we lead a Bible study in our home on Tuesday nights, and I did a little experiment, and I asked people in our Bible study, what do you think of when you think of a nation? And people answered the way that I would have answered at one point in my life, and that is a country, right? We have the United Nations. So when we think of making disciples of all nations, we're thinking of Egyptians, we're thinking of Nigerians, we're thinking of Americans, we're thinking of South Africans. Jan's like, amen. When we're making disciples of all nations, we're thinking country languages. But that's not what the Bible means. 
We saw that in our survey of the Old Testament. It doesn't define nations in geographic terms, chiefly. It describes it as families, Abraham, all the families of the earth. Describes it as tribes. Describes it as languages. The word Gentile itself is the word ethne, right? ethnicities. That's what the Bible means, chiefly when talking about na- nations. Which means we should not only go to Pakistan, but we should go to the Baloch. We should go to the Pashtun. We should go to the Rajput. I swear I didn't talk with John about this beforehand, but I have in my notes, we shouldn't just go to Nigeria, but we should go to the Igbo and the Yoruba. I didn't have the Fulami, but we should go to them. We should go to the Hausa. So we're not merely thinking in terms of countries. Like, let's get a church in Nigeria. Let's reach Nigerians. You could have the biggest church in the world in Nigeria. And if it's among the Igbo, and there's no Hausa there, then you have not reached the nations. You need to cross into the Hausa peoples. We should reach out to different tribes and languages and share the gospel with different people. What this means is you might need to learn a different language if the church is going to do this. It might mean moving houses to a different part of the city because in this part of the city, it's all this ethnicity and this language, but in this part of the city, it's different. You might need to adapt the way that you spend your time to interact with people from a different culture. How are they going to believe, though, unless the church goes to them? So when we pray that God would save the nations, we're thinking bigger than just countries. We're thinking tribes and languages. And this going to the nations may come at a cost. The reason why there are big churches in Nigeria among the Igbo and there's virtually no churches in Nigeria among the Hausa is because it's dangerous to go to the Hausa. They might kill you. You might suffer poverty by going to the Hausa. You might suffer loneliness by going there. And yet, when you stand before the throne of God in Revelation 7, and there are Hausa people there, because you prayed for them, because you went to them, because you gave money that they could be reached, you will not regret it a single bit. As you are delighting in God alongside your house of brothers and sisters, your joy will overflow with gladness. But gospel preaching is not the only way that the nations will worship Jesus. It's not just gospel preaching. It's also through faithful perseverance. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story in order to show what happens when the gospel is preached out. It's the parable of the soils. The same word goes out, and yet it lands upon different people in different ways. The word of God is sown and falls on different soils, and the soils represent people. And listen to Jesus explain to his disciples what he means when he says this parable. He's talking about the soil that's rocky and the seed that falls on rocky ground. It springs up immediately in the parable. And Jesus gives his interpretation. 
It says, as for the one that was sown on rocky ground, this is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, and yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises, immediately he falls away. Jesus says, it's not enough to appear to show signs of life. Some people receive the word initially with joy. But their response to suffering, their response to persecution, their response to Jesus' command to take up their cross and follow him, shows that they're not actually trusting in Jesus at all. They have no root in themselves, and they fall away. Brothers and sisters, people's initial response to the gospel is not a sign of genuine conversion. The way in which people initially respond to the message of the gospel is not a sign that they are truly saved. We can't see their hearts. They may be responding in all sorts of ways. They may want to believe the gospel because they want to go to America. And they think, this is my ticket to America. They may want to believe the gospel because they think it's going to give me a better life. God's going to give me the house I want. He's going to give me the job I want. He's going to give me the promises I want. They may respond to the gospel in order to please you. So that you feel honored rather than shamed. Those are not the response that Jesus is talking about. We need to be aware of this as we go to preach to the nations. Because we don't want people to merely profess faith in Jesus. We want people to persevere in the faith. We don't want merely a church that will spring up like grass and then fade away. We want a church that will endure storms, endure droughts, like an oak rather than a blade of grass. And this is why Jesus warns his church. We read Revelation 7. Revelation 7 comes after, I was an English major, but my my math skills teach me that Revelation 7 comes after Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus warns his church. He appears to these churches in different parts of the world. Churches made up of people from different nations. And he warns them. He warns them because they are tolerating sin and they are tolerating false teaching. And he threatens to remove their lampstand, meaning they will cease to exist. Jesus appears before these churches and warns them Because some of them will not persevere in the faith. Some of them are not persevering. They're not grounded in the scriptures where they don't know what truth truly is. They're not loving truth with their hearts, but they're delighting in sin and tolerating sin. They've lost their love for God and others. They're engaged in sexual immorality. They're lukewarm in their affections. These churches are failing to preach the true gospel and they're failing to persevere. And Jesus says, you're not going to be there in chapter 7 unless you repent and turn from your sin. Which means we should want people to persevere in the faith. 
we should walk with people so they understand what Jesus says in Matthew 28, all that he has commanded. And it is only through faithful perseverance upon hearing the gospel preached that the nations will stand before God and be glad in him. Which leads to our final question. What does this mean for your life and for our church? How does this affect you and how does this affect Redeemer Alain? We're going to answer this question with some questions. The first question, should you go to the nations? Should you go to the nations? Kids, do you know the story of Russell Standall? Russell Standall, my, my family read this book this last year for homeschool. It's called Lights in a Dark Place, True Stories of God at Work in Columbia. We read about Russell Standall, who was a four-year-old boy, four-year-old boy who was growing up in Minnesota, which is very different than Columbia, and he was looking at picture books with his dad that he would bring home, and these pictures would show the world, and one of them was about people who lived in the mountains of Columbia, and in those pictures, the people were engaged in all sorts of sin. They were drinking, they were committing acts of wrong and crime, and as little four-year-old Russell is looking at this, he is shocked that the people would live like that. And so he asks his dad, why do they live like that? And his father answered, well, I guess it's because they don't know any better. Well, didn't help, Russell. Kids, you guys are way smarter than adults sometimes. You don't tolerate bad answers. You ask the hard questions like, why don't they know any better? His dad said, well, I guess it's because no one's ever showed him a better way. Why hasn't anyone ever shown him a better way? His dad hesitated. I guess because no one has ever cared to go? Russell looked at his dad, four-year-old Russell. But you care, don't you, Dad? You care. You can tell them. Why don't we go? Sometimes kids see things more clearly than adults. Parents, how would you answer your kids if that's what they asked you? Why don't we go? Well, Russell's dad thought he had a good answer. Stands up, he pats his son, he smiles. He says, tell you what, Russ, when you grow up, maybe God will call you to be a missionary and you can go to these people in South America. But that answer was not good enough for Russell. Four-year-old Russell got off the couch. He knelt down on his knees right then and there. And he said, dear Heavenly Father, please call my parents to be missionaries right now. I don't want to have to wait until I grow up to tell those people about Jesus. God answered that prayer. Four years later, the Stendhal family were in South America learning language and preparing to go and share the gospel with the native people there. Russell would be there for his entire life, mostly. He would be arrested as an adult. He would be held as a prisoner of war when communism took over. And yet he would continue to preach the gospel so the nations would be glad in Christ. Kids, some of you guys should pray like Russell. 
And adults, some of you should see things with the clarity of childlike faith. God can provide for you. If you leave one job, God is not the least bit threatened by that. God can help you learn language. God can give you friendships. God can give you the strength. How will they hear unless someone is sent? This may not necessarily mean leaving this city, by the way. One of the things that's amazing about Alain is that we have nations here who don't have access to the gospel back in their home countries, and yet they're here. And you're here. You work among them. You live next to them. You can share with them. It might mean learning a different language. It might mean trying things that make you uncomfortable by your cultural standard, eating foods that you don't normally like, or putting yourself in environments that are not natural to you. It will take intentionality and effort. It won't just happen, but it will be worth it should you go to the nations. Second question, assuming you do go to the nations or you know people who go to the nations, does your strategy lend itself to perseverance? Are the ways that you seek to make disciples from among the nations taking into account what genuine conversion is and not merely springing up like grass and withering, but enduring like an oak of righteousness? If we want the nations to endure, then we may have to take the time to master language fluency so that we make sure we are clear in what we are telling them and that we're able to answer questions that they have. It may mean that we have to teach people who don't know how to read how to read so that they can read the inspired word of God for themselves and endure rather than being dependent upon a teacher or an authoritative presence who comes and tells them what to believe. We can use orality to be able to teach people and disciple people, but we should have the long view in mind and teach people how to read the Bible for themselves. It might mean that you need to go and get additional training, that you don't feel confident being able to understand this book and teach people to observe all that Jesus commanded. And so you take time apart to go to seminary or to go to Bible college or to get additional theological training. Our goals should not be speed. I remember reading a, a book when I was in seminary talking about rapid multiplication and the way in which you go about seeking rapid multiplication is you don't teach. You let people discover for themselves now, we certainly want people to read the Bible for themselves and to discover, but I think the Apostle Paul would be appalled by that because the Apostle Paul is going to stand with the Ephesian elders of the church that he helped to start, and he's going to stand there and he's going to say, I am innocent of your blood, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It is not arrogant to come and to say, look, someone has taught me how to see this. Yes, the Holy Spirit works in our lives, opens our hearts, but the Holy Spirit also wrote a book, and the Holy Spirit gives the gift of teachers to the church to be able to help the church be built up, 
to be able to endure when other threats will come. Do you know what syncretism is? This is a good term. Syncretism is a blending of worldviews. If we do not come in and help people know how to interpret their own worldview, then they will interpret God through their existing worldview. And it will be wrong. We need to come in and we need to say, this is what the Bible says. And hold it open for them to be able to see so that they can endure until the end. Our goal is perseverance. Third question. Are you cultivating a heart for the nations to worship Jesus right now? Are you personally cultivating a heart for the nations to worship Jesus right now? One of the reasons why our church prays every single week for the most part, we pray for a different nation. And the reason we do that is to help tune our hearts to look outside this room and to be able to look at the globe and see God's purpose for it. Are you yourself praying for the nations? One of the best ways that I've found to tune my own heart to see the nations as God sees them is by reading books like this. Even kids' books like this. We read this as last year when our church, when our family was going through a season of uncertainty. And we were asking sometimes, what are we even doing here? What's the reason for us being here? And I didn't go and choose this book in order to tell me that. I had to read this book because it was part of the curriculum that we're using. But as we read this book, page after page after page, with my kids at dinner time, I found myself stirred. I found myself crying because I had grown cold to the work that God was doing among the nations. And this helped me to see afresh what an amazing thing it is for a sinner to repent. The angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. How much more must they rejoice when the nations are glad in God? We see that in Revelation 7. They fall down on their faces before the throne worshiping. So read missionary biographies. Pray for the nations. It will tune your heart to the nations the way that God wants you to be tuned. Which leads to our final question. Are we delighting in worshiping Jesus ourselves? You will not want the nations to be glad in Jesus if you are not glad in Jesus. You will not want the nations to worship Jesus if you are not worshiping Jesus. Church, there is no greater good than God himself. He is the one who satisfies the joy of every longing heart. He is full of perfection and overflows with love. He is faithful. He is near the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. He is generous in his grace, lavish in his mercy. When we see him, we become like him as he is, radiant and glorious because he is the source of glory and splendor. Are you happy in him? If you didn't have anything else in this world but you had God, would that be enough? Would you be satisfied in him? The psalmists were. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? Lord, on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We must never forget 
that we are not the heroes of the story. Jesus is. We are not the ones who run out and save the nations. We are the nations that need saving. David's word was so good earlier. We are the blood-bought, and there are other sheep who are not of this fold that Jesus will go and he will bring because he has purchased them for himself. He who is the perfection of beauty came down as a servant in order to die so that the nations could be glad in him. And so we sing with the nations. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let the nations be glad in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you care about those who do not love you right now. You care about those who do not know you right now. You care about those who have rebelled against you. And we know that, Lord, because that is us. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And yet, Lord, you laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Lord, help us to worship you. Help us to want the nations to worship you. Help us to go to the nations so that they would worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.